Thank you, Dr. Wang. Um, this is a very strange experience for me because where I normally sit is back there. <laughs> I've never sat in this first row before, let alone stand up here. Um, and um, this is a very meaningful experience for me. And actually, as, as Dr. Tuar and Alvarez were sharing, I realized I have never sat in on a lecture on Asian American psychology myself. Um, except for when I go to a conference and the presentation specifically on the topic, I've never been to a, a place where it's like an open form, essentially. So um, I'm having a lot of meta moments myself today. Uh, normally, I, I'm presenting on research I've done or clinical work, but today I'm actually going to be more narrative. I'm going to share a bit of my own experience as it connects to experiences around racism, microaggressions, white normativity, and invisibility. Oops. So I'm titling it, Psychology, Race, and Evangelicalism, A Journey Toward Liberation and Flourishing. So here's my family. This is a year ago. Um, as uh, Dr. Wang introduced, I was born and raised here in Southern California. We are a Taiwanese-American family. And I wanted to highlight some of the pieces around my upbringing that are relevant to today's conversation. And yes, to some degree, I had a very stereotypical East Asian American family upbringing, a lot of emphasis on education and achievement. And I was also, though, the first of two daughters. And so that meant um, I was very compliant. Uh, my parents, uh, mar their marriage was rough growing up, so I was the good older daughter. And how how I made things work for myself was by doing really well. And in doing really well, it's it's almost like that coincided with this model minority stereotype, and it just got reinforced over time, over time. And um, I was born and raised in the Hacienda Heights area. And so by the time I got to middle school and then high school, the majority of my friends were Asian American. So I, I had, for me at least, the privilege of have feeling like the majority, so to speak, socially. And so that gave me a lot of, you know, a sense of confidence, a sense of self um, in those social circles. And uh, this wasn't until later when I was doing some writing, when I reflected on, okay, what were the racial identities of all of my teachers, right? And I realized, oh, almost all of them were white. And so here we were, a bunch of high-achieving, mostly East Asian American young people who were being graded by white teachers, being evaluated, all of your college applications and recommendations, just psychologically think about how that impacts a young person growing up, right? And um, the other piece I wanted to highlight is growing up in a Taiwanese-American church, a church that I loved very much and still love to this day. Um, but even if theologically the church was affirming of women in leadership, culturally it, it was a different experience, right? The questions that I think are helpful to ask are things like, well, um, you know, who at leadership meetings, whose voices are prominent, right? Uh, how are we responding to people's preferences in church and the decisions that are being made? Who is 
who's in the kitchen, right? Just various gender roles. Who is serving? Who is noticing the needs of other people? Um, I'm asking these questions because a lot of my research has been on gender and power. Uh, but when I look back on, on my context, um, growing up in a family where it was more patriarchal, being in a church context where that was the case, um, it was not easy for me to feel or see that I was visible or that my voice was important. So that's the backdrop. But what was important was that I had to get good grades, right? People joke a lot about that. Um, but I kind of want to highlight as um, a fairly a privileged, fairly light-skinned East Asian American with middle to upper class background, the sort of insidious ways that racism and um, my own racialization can impact even someone like me. And there are m many more examples for um, other people. So... In my early MFT training, uh, I was trying to find a picture to represent it, but this is kind of how I felt, right? Happens to be a yellow tree, but that, you know, um, <laughs> yeah. So I, I wanted, my time at Fuller was very healing for me in so many ways. And I would say the hugest part was the spiritual integration. I remember when I came here, there was so much about who God was that I didn't really understand or grasp in my home church upbringing. But being here, the presence of the faculty, it really nurtured in me a grace and compassion toward myself. And that is a gift that I carry to this day. Um, there are, these are th the things that I experienced around my racial identity were not um, anything that anyone did on purpose, but it was like, in looking back, it's like, oh my goodness, you know, um, that, that was really difficult for me. And for example, um, because I had mostly Asian American friends coming to Fuller, I know it sounds strange, like, oh, there are non-Asian Christians, you know, um, I grew up in an Asian Christian context. And for example, we had, I remember this gathering at a faculty person's house and at church, what are the social norms for me as a Taiwanese American female? I'm, I help get things ready. I help serve people. I give people food. I make sure people are fed. I'm noticing the needs of that context. But I remember at this party thinking, how come no one's getting up and like giving food to people? Am I supposed to do that? Is that expected of me? What's my role here? And just feeling a lot of discomfort. Like I'm, I feel very different right now and I'm not sure how to fit in into the space. Um, another experience was in a group supervision context where I was the only Asian American and everyone was just sort of like talking whenever they wanted. It's like, oh, I have a comment, I have a comment. And I was just like, like this, well, you know, watching people talk and not feeling like I knew how to speak up because what I was used to was being invited to speak or when there's a space to speak, then I speak up, right? So it was very uncomfortable for me and all of it to say, I think it really grew in me this sort of anxiety around who I am and feeling like I had a white, super, white male supervisor that I had to be so prepared for supervision. And if I didn't have the right questions, the right answers, all of these things that somehow he would think less of me and the people I represented, you know, so... Um, 
uh, Dr. Ken Hardy, who is a professor in the field of family therapy, he writes in one of his books, there's this chapter, and he calls it the, G- the gem therapist, the good, effective, mainstream minority family therapist. And I guess what I... That was me, you know. I I think I was really good in my clinical work, but it was this external identity I was developing as a therapist. And never once did any of my supervisors ask me, so tell me about your cultural background, your experience around race, and how that contributes to your identity as a growing therapist. it never happened, and I, I didn't think anything of it because I didn't know anything about it. And, um, yeah, so this idea that the field itself, there was, I wouldn't have known to call it white normativity, but in, in retrospect, I think that was my experience. And then being really invisible. Um, this is not just, it wasn't just in my education, but in general, places I've gone to feeling like no one's ever curious about my cultural background, right? Um, no one really understood or knew about Taiwanese heritage or culture or food. Common thing I, I hear is, oh, you're Taiwanese? I love Thai food, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and it's just like, okay, I, I don't have energy to engage with that. But but you you think about that, right? Like Dr. Alvarez shared, over a lifetime, right, of comments like that being made, you feel like you don't belong, you're not known, you're not seen, people don't care to, to consider your culture and do research on it. Um, so yeah, that was um, some of my earlier years. And... Um, I'll, I'll share more about, so, oh, one, one key experience I had, I remember the supervision. There was this older couple I was seeing, it was a biracial couple, it was like a, a white husband and a Latinx wife, and the husband had issues with pornography, and what was he interested in? Asian women, okay. Can you believe, my, my supervisor never talked to me about that experience. I mean, can you imagine, I'm in my early 20s, very anxious every time I walked into that therapy room and I had no idea what to do. And um, never once was a conversation about me as a developing therapist and how that was impacting me. It was always about this, you know, as Bowen work, neutral therapist, right? <laughs> um, is that realistic or possible? I, I don't think so. So, Those are some of my reflections around um, today's topic. I want to go into church context, and I know um, many of us here have grown up in the church or are involved or familiar with various church contexts, and um, there's so much that was a gift to me and my family growing up, right? We know a lot of immigrant ethnic churches are supportive places for families. It's where we had our doctors, our car mechanics, um, so much support that my family really needed in the immigration process. Um, But I think one, and I'm not a theologian, so there are many more people who can speak to this, but experientially what it was like is because church was about uh, perpetuating and supporting, validating our parents' family values, Asian American values, that it was devoid of any racial awareness, right? It's like I never knew I was Asian American in this very strange way. We didn't talk about it at church. Um, and the other piece now I know is a lot of Asian American Christianity um, 
comes from white evangelicalism, right? So I think back, who were the books that we read, right? Tim Keller, all these white pastors. The songs that we sing are white church songs. Um, and we don't ever think twice about what we're absorbing and and whose voices, whose experiences we're internalizing as our own. And so I think, you know, psychologically, unconsciously, it's doing something to our psyche as Asian Americans growing up in the church. Um, also, I mentioned earlier, right, growing up in a patriarchal environment, I think it was difficult for me as a woman in the church to really feel like my voice matters. So um, like was mentioned earlier, Dr. Um, Tawari, the intersectionality of my identity, right, being Taiwanese and being female in the church that I grew up in, there was a lot that I, I didn't feel in terms of being visible. And it wasn't, it was in church, it was in my school context, my work context. And so um, I think, I don't know about you, but I grew up memorizing a lot of Bible verses and, you know, learning Bible verses, being really, learning how to do evangelism. I was a navigator in, in college and um, amazing foundational upbringing, right? But I think that really coincided with my model minority expectations. It's like, oh, I'm going to be really good at doing this. I'm going to be, you know, the best, whatever, evangelizer, right? Um, and, and there was no space to explore alternative ideas about who I could be and develop into. So I guess sharing all of that, right, going back to how this could impact me as a therapist, and maybe you can consider me as a case study, but um, I was very, very anxious those that first year of my training and a few years out. I remember um, I led the Saturday parenting child abuse group for a whole year, and I was probably the youngest person in that room, the only Asian American, and I just felt so much stress about the, the ways that people would perceive me, the clients, right? They're older, they have kids, um, all these things. But I think racially, it was a really big deal because I felt like... Um, you know, what would they see in me? Why would they listen to me if I've been feeling invisible for so long? I think another piece that has come up because I've been supervising since about 2011, having worked with a lot more Asian American students since then is people saying things like, I don't know if this is the field for me, right? Uh, because students get comments like from, from other supervisors, oh, you need to focus more on emotion, right? Can you elicit more emotion out of your clients, right? And it's like, well, I don't know how to. Like, I don't, I don't have that background in my family upbringing. Um, not to say that that's experience of all Asian Americans, but I think a number of students have shared that for me to feel like, oh, that was my experience too. I avoided couples therapy because it meant you had to deal with emotion, and that's not something I had any experience around in my life. And so when um, I'm expected to perform and, and do that clinical work, it was very anxiety-provoking. So feeling like I'm alone in that process, my peers, it's like it comes naturally to them, my clinical skills are really different, and so um, 
I, I just think there's a, a feeling incompetent, right? That's I know it's normal. There's this idea of imposter syndrome for a lot of us when we start off in the field, but I think there are very unique ways that that shapes the Asian American therapist identity. Um, yeah, and I think the other piece that coincides with some of the clinical work I've done is, in general, because of some of the intergenerational challenges in the Asian American family, my upbringing is such that if I have to deal with emotional issues, I do it alone, right? I don't, I can't do it with my parents. They don't have access to it. Maybe they don't have the language. And so I'm used to just carrying my emotional distress on my own in isolation. So what happens when I go through a program and I feel some of that distress, I carry it alone, right? So, um, I was afraid of using my own voice because there was not a place to do it. And, you know, I'm so thankful that that's not where my experience is still. When I um, started the program at, at Loma Linda, the focus of this program it is largely due to one professor um, who integrated a lot of social context. And, and most of my faculty were white. I had this very interesting experience because um, first I was in this gender and power research group for four years for four hours every week. We would do couples therapy through a one-way mirror and then process it behind that mirror and talk about all these interactions. And that's when I started to deconstruct the internalized sexism and patriarchy that I grew up with. And then um, that helped a whole lot. But I remember actually... So most of those colleagues, like 10 of us every week, there was an Indian woman, but everyone else was not Asian. And for some reason, the conversation went to race. I think the couple we saw might have been a biracial couple. And uh, the faculty, were they were asking for our feedback. And I, this is where I bring in Jason Chu here. I showed the video, um, Invisible People, right? And... It was so powerful to show this experience of Asian Americans feeling invisible to my white professors. I remember I was tearing in that group supervision because I felt seen. I felt like for once my supervisor cares about people like me and my experience and care enough that they would want to learn about it for clinical work. And that wasn't, I mean, I was licensed for a few years by then. And so... Um, that was a very liberating experience for me, and it continued to be that way. And you know, even though I assume that today we would have a, a majority Asian American um, audience, one thing I thought of that was really helpful for those who are not is this. Most of my classmates were white students as well. Some of them are some of my closest friends now, and that's because the faculty challenged us and encouraged all of us to look at racial issues as well as the interactions between one another as we were developing as therapists. So you know what would happen is we went out to lunch one day and it was like, I'm just call people by their racial identity, my white friend, myself, and another white friend, okay? And um, we get to the counter to order and the person naturally assumes I'm not part of this group, right? Oh, are you with another? No, these are my friends. And then my friends started to notice the experiences I had around racial microaggressions to the point where when we went to a national MFT conference, the um, keynote speaker made a comment about Asian American parenting that was kind of derogative. And I was, was 
boiling my face is turning red and I was like I bet no one here understands why this is offensive but my white friends next to me oh my gosh Jessica are you hearing this this is crazy and just that validation was everything to me it meant to me that they are starting to see the world through the lens of of pain, of grief, of confusion, of all of this, that that is very normal to me, that I just normalized. And so all of it to say that in that journey, I needed my white peers and faculty to see what my experience was, and that itself was healing and liberative. Uh, so, you know, it's, I think it's amazing. And this is where, you know, I... I don't usually, a lot of my presentations are in, in non-faith-based spaces, but it's really wonderful to think about and reflect, you know, why has God shaped these experiences in my life? And I think about how, you know, I felt called into this field because I wanted to serve Asian American Christian churches and families. And I realized that it's taken a really different turn. And because of my own experience with feeling like I have more access to who I am, the person God made me to be fully in my identity, you know, all of my privilege, all of my marginalization, and how I can be a voice and speak to that. And I hope for, you know, why my colleague Dana and I wrote this book the last few years is that we both as people of color had the same experience as we supervised and taught. All of our students with marginalized identities were sharing the same things with us. They felt alone, like they weren't good therapists, all of these things. And so, you know, our hope is that people who are early career therapists are not going to have the same experience that we had when, you know, a decade ago. And I, I know it's a lot more different now in so many institutions, but I, you know, the MFT field in a few years, you'll be licensed, believe it or not. In another few years, you'll be a supervisor and you have the opportunity to work with your supervisees and trainees to ask these questions. So tell me about your racial and ethnic identity, right? Are we comfortable having those conversations with the people that we work with, our colleagues, our peers, our supervisees? I think it, you know most of us grow up with a lot of tension and stress around these kinds of conversations, but they really need to happen because what can happen if they don't is people leave the field or they isolate. Um, it can exacerbate people's mental health symptoms, all sorts of things. And so um, you know, that's experience that I wanted to share with you today. Uh, sorry, I just realized um, I wasn't watching the time. I'm not sure how long I've been going. Yeah, I'm very grateful for the healing that God has brought in my life because of my education, right? And I am grateful that people here who are still students have the opportunity to receive awareness and learning and mentorship in different ways than, than I had. And um, yeah, we are so blessed and honored to be here and um, are excited to keep having conversation right now. Yeah.